Imagine a world where you knew that you mattered and you belonged. The people cared about you because we were so darn good at listening to one another, no matter how different we are. That is what Sidewalk Talk is doing by putting listeners on sidewalks all over the world so that we can practice the art of connecting. Join me, founder and director Tracy Rubel, as I interview experts on the fine art of human connection and interview some of our volunteers who've been listening on the sidewalk and even some of the folks that we've listened to. And if you want to volunteer, consider joining us at sidewalk-talk.org. Okay, so if you haven't gone and checked out the Instagram account, Decolonizing Psychology, you've got to go check out Dr. Jennifer Mulan because that's how I found her. And what I love is she's challenging the way we think about mental health because really she believes it's essential that we create dialogue to address how mental health is really deeply affected by systemic inequalities and really the trauma of oppression, particularly the well-being of queer, indigenous, black and brown people of color. And this is a conversation where if you've never heard any of those terms before, you're going to learn what we mean by that. So a bit about Dr. Mulan. She earned her doctorate of psychology degree from the California Institute of Integral Studies. She got her master's degree from NYU, Steinhardt School of Education, and her bachelor in psychology from New Jersey City University. And her dissertation was on slavery and the intergenerational transmission of trauma in inner-city African-American male youth, from the cotton fields to the concrete jungle. This will be a conversation where if you're a therapist or you're somebody who is a person of color who's gone to see therapy, that might broaden your lens and help us become better connectors and do a better job thinking about how we connect. And that's what this podcast is all about. So I'm really excited to bring you Dr. Jennifer Mulan. So, Dr. Jennifer Mullen, I, I got to tell you, I've been kind of stalking you for a while. <laughs> <laughs> In a good way, I hope. <laughs> yeah, I feel like you do this really cool thing, which is you balance provocation with care. Mm, thank you. Thank you. Mm. So, I, I don't think I realized I was doing that. So, I'm just taking that in. Thank you for that. Yeah. Well, I think when you balance provocation with care, what you do is you invite people to get uncomfortable and stay longer in the discomfort, I think. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe that's part of my like therapist training. <laughs> 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 that we learn how to do that. Like, you know, a lot of time there's sarcasm underneath what we're saying or some level of sort of like mm, a little, I'm just going to drop this here and then you can decide whether you want to pick it back up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to be transparent with Mm -hmm. the crew here about Mm -hmm. our arrangement Mm -hmm. um, because I want folks to learn something about our arrangement. Mm -hmm. So I I called Jennifer because I wanted her consultation on something. So she's actually consulting the entire Sidewalk Talk crew as a part of this podcast, which means that we're actually paying her. And I want to explain to you why we're paying her a stipend. It's not a it's not what she earns as a therapist. It's an <laughs> honorary stipend. But this is what we mean when you hear folks use the phrase emotional labor, because mm-hmm. she's going to do some labor for us mm-hmm. and educate us 
And one of the things that I feel in alignment, and when you asked, I'm like, oh, yeah, that makes total sense, right? Um, but I think a, some folks don't know what emotional labor is. So just to frame this whole conversation, we're going to talk about systemic injustice and racial injustice and psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. And Jennifer's going to educate us, and she's our paid consultant for this time together. And it is my honor. Thank you for having me here. And thank you for being willing to open up um, the sidewalk crew and the sidewalk talks to having a deeper conversation around things that make us uncomfortable. But I'm ready. I'm ready. Let's do it. I know you are. (laughs) So I I think I called you because there was this, this context that, you know, for me, there are a lot of listening projects on the planet. And I closely did, I aligned with psychotherapy because I'm proud of what I've learned as a therapist to hold that same tension between care and discomfort, right? Mm-hmm. And um, some of the other projects maybe don't come from those same roots. And it created some ruffles um, with someone that I knew who is white and male. And he said, yeah, I don't, I'm not super stoked that you got, that you're affiliated with psychotherapy. And he made a monolithic statement that I don't love when people do that that um, no people of color go to psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. I'm like, hmm. So I could get pissed off about this, which I was for a little bit. Then I felt the heartache because I felt really sad because we couldn't dialogue about it. And I thought, mm-hmm. I'm just going to inform myself. Let's just yeah. get educated. Yeah, yeah. So that's why we're talking. Okay. And what is this statement that he, I mean, we can't know what he's thinking. But can, can you give me a lens on how psychotherapy might support systemic injustice in our world? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, if we, if we go back a couple hundred years, right, um, when we think about the people of the land, of whatever land that we're on, so... Um, for example, I'm in you know New Jersey, so I'm on Lenape land. Um, this is for us in North America, known as uh, Turtle Island. And so it's important, I think, a to acknowledge the individuals who originally were here in this space um, and the ways in, in which they have been colonized and um, our native and First Nation brothers and sisters, their rights and their ways of being, um, their collectivistic, spiritual ways of living have been removed. Mm -hmm. So I think that the conversation goes back there to how um, rights and free will have been removed, um, have been pathologized. Um, And I'm sure everybody's pretty familiar with that term, but when I talk about pathology, it is in a more mental health clinical sense, it is assigning some sort of uh, sickness or problem to a behavior or to a personality, to a person, or even to a people. So psychotherapy was formulated um, by a bunch of white guys, European guys, right? Like the concept, right? That the science, the art, the medical aspect of psychotherapy, of psychology was created. Um, Some people say Freud, Charcot, but the reality is these were individuals that had no concept and consciousness of their own privilege. Um, they were working for the bourgeoisie. Um, they were individuals who themselves were being compensated and paid by the very people 
whose families they were treating. Um, case in point, a lot of young women that he was diagnosing with hysteria. And as many of us know, um, hysteria was a way to basically say, hey, these young women or girls are just quote unquote crazy. They're overreacting. And meanwhile, they were victims of abuse, assault, um, incest, so on and so forth. So, hey, I am fascinated by history, clearly. Like, <laughs> I mean, decolonizing therapy is what I do. But psychotherapy then has then been applied throughout the world, throughout the ages, for a variety of different people. And in my humble opinion, professionally and personally, dismissing the needs um, culturally of a people. So does psychotherapy really pay attention to the collective whole or is it individualistic? Is it worrying about how am I doing? What are my needs? How can I become super wealthy? I, I, I. Um, and I don't remember where I heard, first heard it from, but a lot of people um, love this sort of uh, metaphor of illness, I for illness, um, and then we for wellness. Hmm. Um, so if I could draw that out, it would look much cooler than me saying it this way. But, <laughs> but essentially, um, th this, this focus of psychotherapy has brought us back to the individual and the individual's woes and issues. And I'll get to that in a moment. I'm not to say that it's horrible to think about your own issues, that yeah, we do need to take care of ourselves. But at the detriment of our connection with others, at the detriment of um, not continuing to consume the beauty that is our neighborhood, our collectives, for some people, our tri their tribes, um, not looking at culture in terms of how do African Americans, how to displace Africans, how to enslaved Africans, how do they engage with therapy or wellness? Does therapy really work for everyone? If someone is of the if South Asian identified um, and they're not comfortable, and I am definitely generalizing right here, but as an example, if they're not comfortable in always expressing their feelings, and it is a culture in which individuals have to keep things quote unquote within the family. Mm -hmm. And I say, oh, just go to therapy, go to therapy and work it out. Some of the mm -hmm. first fears that the people that I work with have are, are you going to tell anyone? And I'm saying, oh, it's confidential. Okay, that's great. But what is that? Are you going to tell anybody? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, are you really going to tell anybody? Um, does this mean I'm crazy? Quote unquote. Um, does this mean that there's something wrong with me? And how is this going to help me engage with my family? Mm -hmm. How is this going to help me better engage with my inner sense of self in the context of Hinduism or being a Muslim or identifying as Christian? And I think that that's where one of the places where psychotherapy and psychology and therapy in general drops the ball. Mm -hmm. We don't continue to think about we and the collective and it becomes extremely individualistic. Um, and we, we sort of say, hands off, this isn't political. Um, I even had a, a, for somebody I was interviewing as a chair, one of my professors while I was doing my dissertation, and I told him that, hey, you know, I'm interested in ancestral trauma and intergenerational trauma. And I wanna look at um, inner city male youth, you know, the African diaspora. And I wanna look at how slavery plays out in present day in their actions and how they feel about themselves um, and gang affiliations. And I, and I want to do this in this context. And he'd look at, he looked at me and he took a really deep breath and he goes, Jennifer, I hate to tell you this, but psychology and politics don't mix. 
And, and I remember being so crushed. I remember feeling as though like, that he, he just took away my, my, my holiday, like my Easter bunny. Like he just yeah. took away and, and I felt punched in the gut. And it wasn't until years later, I was able to articulate that the two are, in, there are, are so connected. They're mm-hmm. intertwined. There is not one without the other. Um, systemic injustice is everywhere, depending on who you are and how you walk in this world. Um, it, it just impacts you a little bit more. Um, but does it impact white middle-class women? Of course it does, right? Does it impact um, white men? Of course, because racism, sexism, classism, ableism, all of it dehumanizes every single one of us. It takes away our humanity. It takes away our ways of engaging with one another in a more humane, less uh, competitive, um, less overworked, stress manner. But it particularly impacts people of color, people in the margins, um, queer identified individuals, indigenous identified individuals, people living with invisible, invisible disabilities. Um, Systemic injustice becomes life or death for many of us. Um, But yeah, and you know, in closing to that really amazing question, I believe that in psychotherapy, you know, in therapists, we have this ethics code that we should be doing no harm. And I am not entirely sure um, often unconsciously, because I think that therapists generally come into this work wanting to do no harm and wanting to help. But I believe, and not really always holding a very holistic, um, politicized approach, we are harming many of the people that we continue to serve. Yeah. So what I'm hearing you say is that the focus on the I strips out the balance of the we, not that you can just focus on we, Mm -hmm. but by giving primacy to one, you actually potentially harm people, right? And I also am hearing you say at the end there that you actually can't divorce psychotherapy from the political. No. 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 Um, We're a full person Mm -hmm. with our needs, Um, all of our intersecting identities. Um, Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw um, coined the term intersectionality. And it really, really allows us to look at the fact that a person is not just African-American. They're not just Christian identified. They are not just, um, you know, blind or hearing impaired. Um, That we are interconnected, right? That there's interconnected natures of different categorizations that are social, like race and class and gender. And not only do they apply to a given individual, but they apply to groups um, and they overlap. And it's sort of an interdependent system of either discrimination or disadvantage. Mm -hmm. Um, So it it really helps us. it's It's a framework, a theoretical framework that really helps us to understand all of our intersecting social and political identities and how they're just combined to create unique and a unique individual, a unique person. Mm -hmm. And if we're not meeting this and we're not really paying attention to the fact that, you know, client A isn't just quote unquote, not working hard enough and needs to quote unquote, pull himself up by his bootstraps, but rather maybe his name is immediately a discriminatory microaggression strike against him. That when people look at his resume or CV, no matter how qualified, there's something about his name that allows people to continue to keep turning. Or there's something about the way that he's walked into the room and the way that he's wearing his hair. Or perhaps it's his pronouns. 
And then he said, oh, yeah, my pronouns are they, them, theirs. Thank you very much. But you can also utilize he, him, his. Mm-hmm. And immediately that has placed the interviewers in a place of discomfort. Mm-hmm. So then us as therapists, if we're sitting here and this man comes in to talk about, you know, I, I have all these degrees. Um, this is the work that I do. I have my own company, but I can't seem to land a position doing A, B, C, and D. Mm-hmm. And if a therapist, knowingly or knowingly, continues to feed this um, systemic inequality and says, well, have you considered just doing it this way? And, oh, well, have you thought of cutting your hair? And is there anybody you know in this field? And not that those things are inherently wrong, but instead, maybe acknowledging, mm, have you had this experience before? Mm-hmm. When else has this experience come up for you? Um, do you think that experiencing this in any way, shape, or form is related to any form of the isms? Is this any kind of racism or microaggressions? And if somebody is of a white lineage, it's okay to say as a therapist that we need to get much more comfortable with this. Um, you know, I know that I walk in the world as a white person. I know I'm a white person. However, in what I've learned and the work that I'm doing on myself and the work that I'm, I'm doing in this world, I can't help but notice that you're work, walking in the world as a black man. And I'm wondering how much that might be playing out in your inability to obtain a position. Just mm-hmm. saying that can open up a beautiful box, like the sigh and this, yeah, well, like that's possible. Yes. Or yes, man, I go through this all the time, like, but whatever mm-hmm. it is, as a therapist, I believe we have an ethical duty to place it on the table and let people know that um, the pain that they experience due to any inequities and racism and so on is part of why things are not quote unquote equitable and fair and balanced for them. So what I hear you saying is that if we treat the self as this monolithic race-free intersection-free entity that sometimes psychology wants us to, that we're actually going to fundamentally miss and potentially harm somebody who has all kinds of intersectional inputs that are playing into whatever problems they're bringing into the therapist's office, and that it's our job to know how to look for those, talk about them, and bring them in as part of the treatment plan. Is that what you're saying? That is precisely it. Absolutely. Okay. Yes. And, um, you know, mainstream therapy, um, one of my posts I talked about, and I put it in quotes, you know, white therapy leaves us feeling gaslighted, inadequate, disconnected, and dead. And when I say us, it's individuals that are frequently historically on the margins. And I just want to clarify part of this is yes. What I mean by that is that therapy that focuses on the experience of the middle class, uh, white, able-bodied, cisgendered, heterosexual person um, is the therapy, is the type of therapy and treatment that many of us have been trained within. We are trained to serve this system. Mm -hmm. And this system, this mental health industrial complex, serves a larger system, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and I would draw a diagram here. <laughs> like, yep, there's yep. systems upon, right? And right, this like my, macro, micro. So mm-hmm. even though we're, we're treating, quote unquote, and even that word gives me the heebie-jeebies, even though we're working with and, and doing work with the individual, there is still a collective, larger macro experience that this person is bringing into these sessions. And us as therapists on the other end, if we're being, quote unquote, trained, to look at people as pathological or not, or as having 
access two or access one or uh, quote unquote being borderline or bipolar only looking at these levels of different quote unquote pathologies rather than unpacking and saying, hey, it would make sense for a lot of individuals who identify as African-American or black to be quite depressed. <laughs> it would make sense given of the history of you know, American chattel slavery on this, in this country, the United States of America, for individuals who are native or indigenous to feel a deep sense of anxiety and depression and to struggle and to cope in ways that are not always healthy, but are really accessible, mm -hmm. whether that be drinking or violence or so on and so forth. So if we're not pulling out as therapists or as healers, as workers, if we're not looking at this from this frame, we completely miss the experience and we end up um, continuing to do more harm. And we end up continuing to perpetrate yet again, even if it's unconsciously, and we continue to lead the person we're supposed to be helping to believe that it's still their fault mm -hmm. and that there's something they have done to create this and that they need to fix this. Um, again, not taking personal responsibility away from hundreds of thousands of people of color and so on, but our histories of violence um, impact and inform us. And that is part of intergenerational and ancestral trauma. So, um, yeah. So here's a big question I have for you. Mm -hmm. Here we are in a society where people of color are trying to heal from trauma. But how do you heal from trauma when trauma is still happening? When mm -hmm. people of color are still not safe walking down the street? Like mm -hmm. what does that actually look like to heal from trauma, but then be sent out to the wolves at mm -hmm. the end of a session? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And I think that that's part of what so many therapists struggle with. Um, I think that's what leads to a lot of our burnout and compassion fatigue. Um, so it'd be very similar um, inner city youth who were primary targets of very intense trauma, usually by the hands of loved ones and caregivers. There was a great deal of neglect. And I worked in a partial care unit in Newark, New Jersey at a very big hospital. And the partial care unit, these children would go to school the beginning half of the day, and then they would come in to us around one o'clock from one to 5.30. We did individual group therapy. Um, we had psychosocial activities to so help them connect with their other peers, um, you know, ways for them to gain consequences and rewards for things that they're doing that were correct. It was very cognitive behavioral, very behavioral. Um, and one of the things I would frequently say after about my second, third year there, I, I would like sit in supervision and say, these youth are going back home to their families. Like they're going back home to their families. And even though these families may not be actively abusing them anymore, the parents may be still blaming the children. Mm -hmm. like they're acting out. They're the problem. They're not healthy. They're this. And I remember a lot of my supervisors saying, but we're still planting a seed, but we're still doing healing here. We're still helping the youth to set boundaries. We're still beginning to place the salve on the wound and trust that they're going to move forth and do some of this work. So maybe they didn't use those words, but those are the words that I would use now. <laughs> and so, yeah, that's what I would say is that, um, you know, people from all walks of life have experienced various forms of trauma, even our white brothers and sisters. And as practitioners, we can't always know what experiences our clients walk into our rooms and studios with. 
but I believe our goal can be to create the safest environment possible by employing more trauma-sensitive approaches um, and being more inclusive and sensitive to our work um, to any kind of people who have experienced trauma. So um, letting people know that this is just a part of the healing process, I believe equips them with the tools that they need to begin to set better boundaries with others, to understand that, hey, what you're feeling isn't your issue, that other people feel this, that maybe there's theories to support this, that, hey, but even now, I'm like, you know, a lot of of the young people that I work with, I work at a college university counseling center as my day job, my full-time job. And so a lot of my students come in 19, 20, 25, sometimes have 40 year old, 45, 35, but they come in feeling as if there's something terribly wrong with them. Hmm. I went through all of this all my life. Clearly creator, God, my parents, I, like, I'm not loved. I'm not beloved. I'm not cared for. It's me. There's something wrong with me. Uh-huh. You know, what did I do to deserve this? And even if they're not saying it, their actions or what we're talking about are, are certainly implying it. Although sometimes it's said <laughs> and nine times out of 10, the majority, the chunk of my work is to help someone realize um, that trauma stops us from trying new stuff. Mm-hmm. That trauma stops us from expanding our window of tolerance. And I'm trying to help them realize, uh, Hey, this is what feels like safe in your body. This is what it feels like to feel unsafe in your body. We talk about fight, flight, freeze, fawn. We talk about um, resilience mm-hmm. and adapting in the moment and using less energy to do that. Um, we talk about the importance of movement, however that is for them, even if they're not able-bodied and able to move much. Um, so for me, a lot of the work is helping people understand what this is that's happening in them, that they're not alone, and ways to begin to combat it. And I think I'm so surprised that so many people don't have that understanding of what trauma is and what it means. And then I feel when someone has mastery, and mastery, I use that really loosely, Tracy. Like mastery. <laughs> like I was going to say, you know? girl, I've been to therapy 25 years. I don't have mastery right, right, yet. Right. But this sense of like, okay, I can define trauma. Like when I have a 19-year-old coming in and working with for two years that can say, Oh, no, no, no. I understand. I was having a traumatic reaction. I had to step out of the room. I had to do A, B, C, and D. It worked, Dr. Mullen. And I'm sitting there wanting to cry (laughs) because I'm like, yes, this is somebody that was a young black male that was telling me, no, 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 no. Something's wrong with me. I think you have to lock me up. My family thinks I'm quote unquote crazy. Like what's wrong with me? Why do I shut down when people look me in the eye? Why can't I talk in class even though I have great things to say? Why am I having panic attacks every day in the back of class? you know, literally doubling over in pain. So when, when a person can say that and say, hey, I, I did this, yeah. that, that to me is the beauty, even in a very traumatizing world, it's letting many people of color and disenfranchised people know like, hey, you're not alone. You were meant to be here. This didn't happen for some other reason to teach you something necessarily. <laughs> maybe, yep. maybe not, you know, you did not deserve this. Many people go through this level of violence and yes, there's been a whole other level of violence that you will continue to experience due to systemic, you know, um, racism and disease and inequity. Um, But I think it's important in individuals of color to continue to create what um, 
friend and colleague, a somatic worker, Jane Clapp calls creating moments of triumph. Oh, I love Jane Clapp. We're going to try to get her on too. Oh, amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Creating moments of triumph. And when she said that, I thought, mm-hmm. yes, yes, creating a moment where I'm capable, where my body is able to hold me. And even if I'm sitting in at the, at the board meeting and I'm saying something pretty brilliant, and everyone else is dismissing it. And then a white woman says the exact same thing that I just said. Mm-hmm. And everyone's nodding and clapping and saying, great, great. Take that on. Take that and run. I love how you said that. Mm-hmm. that that's, a, that's, that's violent. And that's happened to me numerous times sometimes in a week. Even in a university in which I work, which has a lot of people of color in it. Like, you know, there, there's, it still is a very violent moment. But if I can take a breath, identify what's happening. Look at maybe one or two allies at the table, whether they're people of color, white allies, queer allies, make eye contact and decide whether or not it's safe to point out what just happened or let an ally say what happened or say to myself after it's over, I didn't deserve that. I'm not going to keep that in my body. I'm not going to take this as there's something wrong with me. I don't, you, you know, like it's really important for us to try to build new ways of coping in our bodies and our systems. And in ways that help us ground ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I do believe that that's what therapists can do, even in the midst of warfare mm-hmm. and loss and mm-hmm. pain. I want to do reflective listening, but you know, you said so much that I'm like, my, I'm <laughs> grounding my nervous system. So um, what comes to mind is, I'll tie this into sidewalk talks. We have a lot of sidewalk talk listeners that will be mm-hmm. listening to our dialogue. You know, I think unconsciously for me, the movement of sidewalk talk was a more organic way to actually, because frankly, one person of color does not represent all persons of color. So for me, I wanted to listen to as many diverse voices as I could. And I didn't buy that sitting in a box with one other human was how we healed. I had a, had a black friend of mine. She goes, Tracy, what is the deal? I mean, I can't, are there any therapists that talk like you? And I'm like, what do you mean? She goes, I have this fantasy that you probably say shit in the room and you probably talk about yourself a little bit. I said, I do. And she goes, what is this whole chin scratching? Like you don't reveal anything. She goes, I can't do that shit. And I'm like, <laughs> and I realized in that moment when she said that to me, I said, oh, that's totally a white thing, isn't it? And she goes, I think it is. And I, I, that shifted me. I self-disclose more and I really show up more in my humanity if it's welcome because of that dialogue and because of the conversations I've had on the sidewalk to the point where like I had most, I would say half of my couples are interracial couples or they're not white. Mm. And I only Mm -hmm. realized this recently because Mm -hmm. I don't track quite as much that way now because I'm used to listening to so many different kinds of people. But I do track because like if somebody says something like, I had a bad review at work. I asked this one guy, I said, is your boss white? <laughs> it's just the first thing I asked. I'm like, yeah, yeah. yeah they are. I said, yeah. okay. And so they gave you this kind of feedback. I said, can we just look at the cultural context around that? What might have been influencing that feedback? And I think it is important. But here's where it it gets tricky. And this is where I'm going to lean into some discomfort between you and I. Mm -hmm. I, How do we acknowledge that we can be shitheads to one another? Like, do you ever get in a a conference room 
-hmm. where somebody steals your idea that's also a person of color, where there's no white people in the room and there's a microaggression that way. And is there an intersection because that person went to Harvard and you went to CIS? Mm -hmm. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, do the Mm -hmm. intersections kind of play beyond race, I guess is what I'm saying. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's where that, the intersectionality piece comes in. Absolutely. You know, there's something called like internalized racial oppression mm-hmm. and internalized racial superiority. And the internalized racial superiority part is mostly amongst white folks. Um, and the internalized racial oppression part is mostly amongst individuals that identify as people of color. And um, one of the manifestations of that is colorism. You know. Um, there's even tokenism. And why I'm bringing these up in response to what you've mentioned is that if we're sitting at this table together and one individual and people are not on the same page and have not had a certain level of education of understanding like dividing and conquering and what that means and <laughs> how that plays out in our communities, you know, because a lot of times in communities of color, there's a thought of like, oh, we're crabs in a bucket. One of us starts getting out. The rest of us are pulling down. And that's a pretty old fashioned perspective. I think it may have very much existed and and does exist. And I think that that comes from, let's say if we think of the United States of America and and the South, the antebellum South, we'll think of slavery, right? And how like, I didn't want, I don't want to be in the field, right? So I'm going to do what I have to do to be the house Negro, quote unquote, that it's safer to like be closer to the master. So these things still play out based on color of our skin, um, so I'm conscious as a lighter skinned woman of color, you know, as a, of the black Latina woman that people are going to listen to me because I speak articulately, I think, um, because I'm lighter skin because of A, B, C, and D. However, have somebody else that's a lighter skinned Latina with really straight hair and a really slim body that I'm going to notice that the attention, the gaze, the white male gaze, even in a professional setting is going to continue to go to her and what she has to say. Unless, unless I make myself crystal clear. And we can be two women of color and still go through this competitive issue. So I think it's important that we continue to educate ourselves around that as well. So yes, it totally, totally and completely exists um, <clears throat> the same way it does when whiteness manifests itself, you know, like in competition, in... Um, well, I get looked down on just because I have long blonde hair from other white women, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's weird. The you whole, mean like stereotypes. Those are stereotypes. So the, help mm-hmm. me understand that. Let's let's let the difference between a stereotype and say sort of internalized racial oppression, for example, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. racial superiority. Yeah, yeah. So um, internalized racial superiority are a number of different manifestations where individuals have begun to like take on these beliefs as a group, as a dominant group, mm-hmm. and it's called superiority because there's you know there's privilege there, right? So internalized racial superiority, like, like I've mentioned before, that there may be competitiveness. That's a huge one. Um, and so a lot of white allies will talk about how they have to often step back, take a deep breath, you know, realize when they're starting to be a bit competitive. Um, time is management. That a, is, is, that a, is that a traditionally white phenomena, com- competitiveness? Yes. Tell me more about that. (laughs) Well, to be honest, um, that's one that I don't delve as much into because I think that as like a woman of color, I attempt to allow my white allies and friends and white people to educate each other more 
Um, and where, where I can then pull back and say, okay, I don't have to continue to take care of my whiteness all the time, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, you're setting a, you're setting a boundary with me. (laughs) Am I? Did it, did that happen? (laughs) What you're saying to me, I just, look, I I have no shame. Like what, 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 what Jennifer is doing right now, she's saying, Tracy, that's a really nice question but you probably should go get on the internet and do a little research (laughs) or you should go talk to some of your white friends who maybe have done a little more social justice training than you to talk about competition among white Mm. folks, because even though you're paying me for this conversation, that goes beyond my boundary. So I just, Mm -hmm. I just want to, I, I don't want to be, I don't want to be nice about this. Come on. Yeah. Let's just, just yeah, be, real be, about it. Mm-hmm. be direct mm-hmm. with me, lady. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the boundary around that is so important and I think it continues to improve relationships. I think mm-hmm. it allows us to continue to be real with each other mm-hmm. and allows us, um, uh, people's Institute of survival and beyond says we call each other in instead of calling each other out. And I think that, and, and I need to shout them out because there might be people out there, white people, people of color that want a training to ground them and they want to know more about internalized racial inferiority and superiority, please take this training. Um, They were a bedrock and continue to be a foundation for me. It's called the Undoing Racism Training Mm -hmm. and they're all over the world, not just the United States. I'm talking about Guam, Puerto Rico, um, parts of Asia, Europe, and it's done by the People's Institute of Survival and Beyond. Mm. Um, and I just have to plug them because I think it's important to always acknowledge the people whose works, particularly people of color labor, mm-hmm. whose shoulders we stand on. So for me, that's yeah. really important. Yeah. But they taught me uh, after 10, 11, 12 times taking the training by different trainers that I don't always have to take care of white people. Mm-hmm. And that is one of the manifestations of for, for, for people of color, that when white people start to get uncomfortable, we start to feel like it could be unsafe for us. Mm-hmm. Does that make any sense? Like, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, like, no, totally. so like, you know, if, if, if you I'm know, not, if I'm not totally a newbie at this stuff. So that stuff, oh, I, no, I totally yeah, get. Yeah. 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 So that, that's something that continues to come up, I think for all of us, even if it's unconsciously. So yeah, thanks for like calling me in on that because I didn't even realize that I was doing it, but thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think, yeah. I think boundaries create trust between people because mm-hmm. I think when you set a boundary with me, mm-hmm. what I know is that you're not full of shit with me. It means mm-hmm. that I can trust everything else that you say because when it's no, it's no. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. I'm like, Oh, she, and I think I'm, I'm just, I'm still wimpy with this whole boundaries business. So I, I guess I like being on the receiving end of other people's boundaries. Cause I'm like, Oh, that's how you do that. Um. <laughs> For me, it's a work in progress too, to be honest with you, Tracy. I feel like every day I'm learning. Even when I, it's great that you brought up that email. Even when I sent you the email back, like I'm getting much better at stopping before I respond and say, sure, sure, sure. Like there's a part of me that's just like, yeah, like this people pleaser. Mm -hmm. Um, And so part of my work and my healing in this very like oppressive society is not to give, like you said, all this emotional labor, right? Like, Oh, I love that email. I loved it. I mean, I just, you know, cause what you, so I'll tell you the, I I won't be be monolithic. I'll just tell you the impact you had on me. (laughs) The impact you had on me is you modeled for me how to do it you, you were embodied in your power, like your tone of voice, you weren't put off by me, but you were just clear. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and I think that's the sweet spot. I think sometimes what I see happening, especially, well, I want to get to another topic. I'll just, Mm -hmm. this last piece, because I really want to talk to you about how, 
and you might say no to this one too, but I, I feel like I need to complain to you about something. Um, but on, on the this last bit here, I, I do feel like um, we sometimes wait until we're mad to set boundaries. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's unfortunately so disruptive to connection, which is the antithesis of everything we're about at Sidewalk Talk. Right. And yet something that I'm still a work in progress around. And I've certainly been guilty of waiting until something had gone far down the path of not working for me before I spoke up. And I can imagine that from an intersectional standpoint, it seems like that seems to be gender training, too, in this particular culture, not just based on race. Yes, yes. I, I definitely so. And yeah, and I think that there's, again, there's just another layer for, you know, Black women and um, South Asian women and Latinx women. There's this whole other layer of, um, and again, not that white identifying women don't experience this, but like I can really get killed right here and now if I also don't agree. Um, and even if it's not always like, okay, my boss isn't going to take out, a, you know, do this to me, okay, but there's a feeling can, of like, okay, I can get, I can get fired. Can I, can I slow you down there? Cause I think it's super important for mm-hmm. everyone to hear. So mm-hmm. I, as a white woman might feel anxious about not being liked when I set a boundary. Yeah. You as a woman of color might feel afraid of dying yeah. for setting a boundary. And so I just want to highlight that distinction that you just, cause you said it so politely and so nicely and and yet it was quite profound and want to make sure that everyone got that. So do we all get the distinction there that what might be going on in Jennifer's nervous system looks very different than what's going on in my nervous system around setting a boundary? Yeah. 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 Um, and I just want to say quickly that, you know, we, we put this whole other layer for individuals also that are not able to quote unquote pass, right. That they're not passing and they're queer, um, and our trans, black trans sisters are dying at really extreme levels, right? They're being murdered. They're not dying. They're being, they're being murdered. So on top of that, like our black trans sisters are also very fearful of their lives. So like there's all these layers and it's not that there's an oppression Olympics because it's not like, oh, they have it worse than I have it. But, but there is some reality in telling the facts of it. You know, there, there's reality of like how unsafe it is for us. Um, and again, our histories and our respective countries have shown us that, mm-hmm. that literally we can die. Um, and then again, that's part of the work that I do. I help people reconnect with their ancestral trauma mm-hmm. and helping us to weave and pull together how some of the fear and insecurity and feelings of loss and even depression um, and people pleasing burnout, these, these cycles of burnout that we're, we're pushed into how much of that ties back to how we're used to surviving, mm-hmm. how much of that is tied back to the ways that colonization, um, the ways that colonization continue to play out in our bodies today, because this is what happened back then in our countries, mm-hmm. in our lands. So um, yeah, I think that it's a really important point. And I also want to point out that um, it's un- it can be unsafe for white women too. We know that, but it frequently, as you've said, does not come up as cold sweat fear immediately, unless you've recently had some kind of um, incident or or extreme trauma. 
But I, I would say for like nine out of the 10 of black women, including trans women that I work with, it is immediately the thought like, oh shit, how can I, how can I get to safety? Oh, oh shit. Like, 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 wait, are they angry? And they're just going to tell me off? Or is this man on the street going to hit me with his cell phone and crack my head open? Is he going to grab his water bottle? And, and, and when I say this, I'm talking nine out of 10 black, brown, indigenous, trans women of color that I work with are frequently talking about having nightmares, dreams, beliefs that they're going to die at the hands of, of whiteness in some way, shape or form. Um, so it's real. It's very real. Very yeah. real. Yeah. So thank you. Well, I'm aware that we're nearing the end of time here and oh, there's so much we could say. I mean, yes, yes. you know, I mean, for me right now, I'm sort of grooving on, I, I know he's got one book that's super popular, which I listen to with my kids, but I actually like Stamp from the beginning from Dr. Kendi. I think that's if you want a bigger history of racism in America, I think it's pretty profound. And then I had to laugh because my friend is, he's black and he's married to a Portuguese woman. I said, it's your wife. She started, started with, no, I'm not going to say that. It started with the Portuguese, but we, we have a, a problem of power and greed that still perpetuates the myth of using people's bodies. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess this comes back to that same question. It's so tricky to heal and I'm so excited to go check out Undoing Racism. There's so many folks cropping up with these Undoing Racism types of projects, and it's hard mm-hmm. to sift through which ones are legit mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and which ones aren't. So mm-hmm. if you have more that you want to send to me so that we know which ones you think are legit versus which Absolutely. ones are not, I would Absolutely. love to shout them out. Absolutely. Um, but here, I've got this question for you that I think you're going to like. <laughs> and then we'll have a cl- um, if you had a magic wand and you could craft the curriculum for all new therapists, what would they need to learn? I love this question so much. <laughs> <laughs> um, and actually it's something I'm working on. Oh, um, fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's a big project and I'm not going to get into it, but it, it's, I'm definitely thinking about, um, and I don't want to use it word training, but better ways of relearning. Mm-hmm. Um, that include us as individuals and include the collective, you know? Mm-hmm. So one of the first things I would do is to A, ensure that there is education about the people's histories, mm-hmm. um, that we are properly educated in understanding that the history of whatever is the, you know, the United States of America is not necessarily the history that other people live and is not the experiences of other people from other countries. I would make sure that therapists understand forced migration, um, which I've learned from a lot of my Filipino friends. Um, That is the part where we think that we're just migrating to quote unquote, come to other countries for a better life. But in the reality, we're going back into countries that have already come in and colonized our countries, (laughs) right? So as an example, like the U.S. came in and, you know, put army bases down in El Salvador, and then they, you know, took a lot of their crops, and then they slowly pushed people away from their jobs, and, you know, people no longer own these farms. Next thing you know, they're working on these farms for little to no money, and eventually individuals can no longer live in those countries. They have to leave these countries 
um, in order to survive and send money back home because all of these resources that the country was so rich in has now been sucked dry. Mm -hmm. So that is forced migration, you know, and that's a trauma, right? Mm -hmm. So how, how many times do we hear somebody say like, oh, I moved to this, yeah, I came here and then my mom and dad are still back home or I came here and lived with my grandmother. That is traumatic. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's really important for therapists to understand forced migration. I think it's important for them to understand um, what socialism is, what capitalism is, what neoliberalism is. And I think that we, what imperialism is, like we need an understanding politically to inform our frame. Um, I also would want for therapists at the same time in Dr. Mullen's world, right, <laughs> to work on their own shit, right? <laughs> so often I feel as though, well, I know in my, you know, in psychology, everything is like CEUs, continuing education credit, um, credits, uh, ethics board, you have this, pay another $300. Well, number one, that's just a way to continue to keep feeding this like machine. But number two, how do we know that these therapists are actually like working on themselves? How do we know that therapists five, 10, 15 years in after going through their own traumas and struggles are really the appropriate people to be treating people who have just lost a loved one? Mm -hmm. We're treating women who have just been victims, um, survivors of sexual assault. Yeah. You know, so I think it's really important that therapists are really constantly working on themselves and not in silos, not individualistically but in collective group, you know, we can come together in groups and work on each other, work on stuff, you know, and talk about how whiteness makes us feel and other white women be in the room. And this way, you know, other white women learn how to tolerate this uncomfortableness. And then, you know, we can talk about black and brown tension and how that pans out and sexism and racism and all of it. But if we don't have these conversations that bring us together, even though that they are really, really, really freaking uncomfortable, we will continue to feel uncomfortable bringing them up in our own individual offices. Um, another thing I would definitely, and I would do this probably for everybody in the world, <laughs> but I would have paid rest and mental health days that are mandatory. Um, I know a lot of people in our field, burnout is highly, highly prevalent. I've been burned out myself and I don't say that lightly or with any, there's a lot of shame involved in being burned out because you know, we can sleep 12 hours straight and take a whole week off a of vacation and come out and still be extremely burned out, mm -hmm. um, you know, and still feel as though we've never taken time off. Um, I would also make sure that mental health professionals are actually connecting, like those of us that do talk therapy, making sure we're learning and taking other quote unquote continuing education credits in somatics, right? In understanding polyvagal, in EMDR, in um, dance therapy and bibliotherapy, I think that there's all these forms of therapy that are not traditional, what I would call more Eurocentric talk therapy forms mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. help people get back into their bodies. Because honestly, just talking is not always going to help someone heal trauma that is in their bodies or culturally systemically. Um, I could keep going, but those are <laughs> those are some of the main things I would really. Well, so let me just reflect and highlight kind of the, the, the essence of what you'd said. I hear that, that actually a political education has to be part of how we do therapy and unlearning our own racist bias has to be part of how we grow up as a therapist. Yes. Um, that it's, that 
there was an argument in a therapist group that I'm in. And mm-hmm. Somebody said, can you please stop making these political posts? And a black therapist said, uh, therapy's political. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and I was like, oh boy. And I yes. said, well, rather than having this faction here in this group ending, can we just create a weekly post where you say, okay, here's where the political discussion is going to happen. Cause then at least the folks that don't want to have the political conversation mm-hmm. will come and they'll come and vo- be voyeurs. Um, cause otherwise I think the moderators are just going to stop it all. Cause they're, it's, it's a group that's too vanilla. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I hear, and I totally agree in the semantics piece, hands down. Right. It's mm-hmm. funny. I was working with, um, I, I've been studying body movement. Right. And I was talking, I, I work with some white women around sexuality and they said, you know, I want you to just go sit on the sidewalk sometime and watch women who are not Western of Western European descent and watch how their hips move. They walk different mm-hmm. because if they didn't, if they're, if they are first generation here and they weren't here, um, weren't brought here in, in some kind of oppressive fashion, mm. they're still liberated in their body and you can see it. Yes. yes. And they're like, wow, really? And I just had this mm. conversation. I said, yeah, you know, oppression is still in your body. You, you know, you, <laughs> it's why your hips are super tight and you, it was, it's uh, so important, the somatics piece. Yes, yes, and, yes. And I also wonder if you think that, you know, there are some forms of healing that are so much older than therapy. I do. I certainly That are indigenous, that mm-hmm. um, could be part of the curriculum. How do you feel yes. about that stuff? Yes. Um, honestly, that's how I work myself, particularly when I do my politicized, decolonized coaching sessions. Um, there is a very strong ancestral emphasis and um, I'm pulling from the ancestral lineages of my own people, of the people in which I'm working with. Um, we're just returning back to our natural ways. We're returning back to listening to our bodies, um, scanning, tracking our bodies, our moments, our movements. Um, Sometimes we're drinking herbs or various things to help us reground and reconnect with ourselves and our people. Uh, drumming, um, I myself am in a year-long um, shaman class. Um, it's not a class. It's, it's a lifestyle. Um, it does not mean in a year that I will be a shaman. I think that would be like hella Eurocentric to say. <laughs> but it means that I am continuing to relearn the ways, the ancestral ways of spirit, of myself. Um, I think it's important to leave space absolutely for other types of spiritualities and religions. Um, That is another return to the ancestral. Um, I think it is important. I think people do better when they're anchored to their ancestral wisdom and that it ends up guiding them, holding them and gathering them um, rather than just being completely in a very uh, brain-centered, you know, frontal lobe state where it's like, I know this, I know yeah. that, that, this is the way. So I completely agree that the indigeneity, I can never say that word, but the indigenousness of who we each are um, needs to continue to be re-remembered. I don't think it's new age. Um, you know, as I told you earlier, like, you know, I'm a graduate of CIIS's um, PSYDOC program. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes I felt that a lot of the spirituality was either A, it was like a lot of spiritual bypassing, or B, it was uh, appropriated, mm-hmm. right? Like, okay, I'm going to ring this Tibetan bell and that means class has started. And I would look around the room like, does anyone <laughs> Oh, yeah, <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> you know, I would look around the room like, 
yeah. can't, this is really awkward, you know? Um, so I think it is important that if we're, you know, I know that people talk about microdosing now and doing peyote and ayahuasca and hey, I think that there's amazing medicinal properties to doing this with the right people. But mm-hmm. may we have some context. Mm-hmm. You know, may we talk about the jungles of Peru or Brazil in which mm-hmm. this beautiful, you know, um, psychedelic herb was used and who was using it? You yeah. know, the shamans or the people going on vision quests and why? Um, so I think it is important that we don't continue to like appropriate and, you know, spiritually bypass, but at the same time, a return to what we remember, a return to yeah. the elders, a return to um, using the land as medicine. Um, yeah. And getting out of our brains and our heads so much more. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll, uh, Spring Washam was just on and she's um, an mm-hmm. African-American meditation teacher. Do you know Spring? No, I don't. No, I don't. Okay. She, she's, you know, she's really, she started the East Bay Meditation Society in Oakland. So she oh. has created a, a meditation community for people of color. And um, she does a lot of shamanistic plant-based medicine work. And I had asked her that question about appropriation. And she's actually in the jungles right now. She lives in, in I think, Peru six months out of the year. Mm-hmm. She said, you know, I actually decided to go to the source and train with the actual people. And I, otherwise I think it, it sort of just like mindfulness becomes this self-optimization technique to send workers back to the workforce rather than true liberation. Right. Absolutely. And and it keeps the capitalistic machine just going and training us out and going and going um, rather than healing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The other thing I just wanted to quickly say about the ancestral piece is I think that for lots of communities of color, like liberation also looks like rest, mm-hmm. you know, um, it looks like you know, napping and daydreaming and recovery and um, learning what healthy attachment and healthy relationships look like if we haven't had that modeled for us prior. Um, because it, again, I, I can speak for many, many different cultures, but in terms of like Africans in America and individuals that identify as black or African slavery was more than just a labor system. It really influenced every aspect of a person's mind. Um, And, you know, the violent labor and the loss of community, it it really continued to kind of rip apart spirit. It was like an emotional death. And so what, what really I hold on to and I hold really dear are these stories of like individuals that were captured or enslaved, like come out at three, four in the morning and dance, you know, they're, they're like traditional dance and, and pray and, and use their own ways and, and natural ways of being. They still, we still survived. We mm-hmm. still brought with us scraps of culture, although we might've felt that much of it is left behind. We still managed to come together in community behind our, you know, master's houses, quote unquote, to come together and sing and heal and grieve. Mm-hmm. Um, but the development of communities, I think, is a very important response to the trauma of having been enslaved and colonized. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it makes me aware that those were some of the underpinnings of Sidewalk mm-hmm. Talk was to really mm-hmm. see if there were a way to be social together and be in a place of shared ecstasy and sorrow in a single place. On a, on a piece of land that didn't belong to anyone. 
Mm-hmm. You know, that there was no ownership of that side because aside from the city, I mean, we usually sit on sidewalks that are not, we've been kicked out of sidewalks that are privately owned, but we sit on sidewalks that are public, right? It's been interesting having this conversation with you in this current context because I'm sitting in Germany talking mm. about, you know, power and dominance and systemic oppression in a country that has dealt with the Holocaust in a very different way than the United States has dealt with slavery. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating to yeah. feel there's still a lot of um, shame on the bodies of Germans. You can see it, right? Yes. But there's also remorse, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, I would say reparation and, and, and even, you know, I live in an immigrant neighborhood. I'm an immigrant, right? Um, So I am surrounded by, you know, the people in my neighborhood are Syrian and Pakistani and, Mm -hmm. you know, some Turkish. Um, So there's a welcoming quality that the Germans have because of that legacy that's different that mm. Americans mm-hmm. don't have that welcoming quality and we've never contended with that, that usury yeah. that's still endemic to, I mean, I feel it in me. I feel that it's not, un, it's not, I can feel sometimes as a woman, I can get angry and jealous. So that guy got extra shits because he's a good looking white dude and I get pissy mm-hmm. about it. But then I'm positive that people of color feel that way about me. And there's this quality of still this hierarchy of usury (laughs) (laughs) that I just don't feel the same way in this particular country. And you can feel it when you're walking down the street. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I I think that you raise a really good point. And um, I'd certainly feel like the inability for Americans as a whole, but white Americans, to really acknowledge the injustices that have occurred in this country, on this land, um, to the Native individuals that first were here before everybody, anybody dropped in, as well as the Japanese and the Chinese and everyone creating the railroads and, um, and the enslaved Africans. Um, there has really been no apology. And not that apology is going to make everything be, quote unquote, better, you know, but, there, but there's been no space no real acknowledgement to say um, that this is what has occurred and this is how we will begin to repair this relationship. Um, And so when we talk about reparations, yeah, some of it should be monetary, of course. You know, um, when we look at the things like the GI Bill and papacy doctrines and acts and Jim Crow laws, we can certainly see how Africans in America did not receive the same fiscally as um, their white counterparts. You know, so when people say, hey, you know, my family came to this country and they pulled themselves up by the bootstraps. Okay, well, I mean, at least you had boots, right? Like, (laughs) you know, like there are lots of people who did not uh, receive anything. And we know that generational wealth is the number one way that people end up becoming wealthy, right? Like, you know, if their families pass down land. If their families have a trust fund, those are ways to ensure that, you know, we have some space to quote unquote, be our best selves. Yeah. So I think it's all tied in. And yeah, and I do think that the United States, um, America was really struggling collectively with this guilt, shame, shadow 
It's kind of like an individual Word. saying, like, you know, like, Word. I don't want to deal with it. It didn't happen. Uh, okay, you keep talking about it. Oh my gosh, can we just let it go already? But you never, you never acknowledge that it happened. You never, you never acknowledge that this brought me so much harm and despair. So why would I let it go when there's been no place to really come forward and connect and repair this relationship actively? And the way that that shadow doesn't just play out interpersonally between me as a white person and you as a woman of color in, in ownership, but how, how it impacts how I do systemic structuring as a white person, because I'm going to still set up systems to avoid my shame. Yes. Yes, you are. Yes. And we need more spaces where we can continue to have these conversations. And in my humble opinion, and from, I mean, I do group work. That is my primary source and way of doing work and healing. I do individual, but group is my baby, is my modality. And I think it's where I have seen the most transformation occur because we're mirrors, because we got to look at each other, right? Because I'm sitting in my shit you're sitting in your shit too, (laughs) you know, and, and it's really uncomfortable, but it allows us to have to keep it real with each other, even if it's not pretty. Um, And I think that we just need more spaces of like keeping it real. And I, but I do think that some of the ways that needs to happen so that people of color don't end up doing a lot of the labor is where, you know, that there are spaces for white people to continue to work on their whiteness, to understand their whiteness, to continue to talk about what it looks like to be in white ally verb, right? Not just like this metaphor, but what does it look like in action to be a white ally? And how can we do this in a way that doesn't impede on like saying we're going to be the leaders of this movement when we come together to do multiracial, intergenerational organizing with other black people and brown people, you know? So I think that that work needs to continue to be done by white people, people of color and their own respective groups, depending on how that works for them, needs to continue to do their organizing and look at how we've been divided and conquered and how we have internalized emotionally colonization and whatnot. And then I do think it's important to come together and continue to do this work together. I do think that it is vital that eventually we come together, but I don't think it can happen when people are in their infancy of understanding. Uh, um, So we can't go out dancing. (laughs) <laughs> we could totally go out dancing. We could totally oh. go out dancing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I, you know, at what point is it bypass? You know, it, that's yeah. the piece is, is, is how do you, is there a continuum and is, are there stages? Do yeah. I have to wait until I have cleared all? Cause, cause what if I'm never conscious in this lifetime? Does that mean I can never mm-hmm. have a black friend in this lifetime? Right. Yeah. No. Um, because I I, cause girl, I've been working on myself for a long time and I still got more shit. Mm-hmm. to deal with. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh mm-hmm. man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, where I'm at with it is um, I have friends of all places, spaces and races, but there are moments and times, many times where I need to be able to say whether you are white or not, Hey, um, this shit just happened. I'm feeling enraged. Can you check me? Is this, this is what I feel like it is. I feel like they're discriminating against me. Blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And if I can't have that conversation with a white friend or a white passing friend, if I can't have that conversation or I'm constantly minimized or, or, there, or there's discomfort and I don't want to even say it to them, eventually that's going to impair my relationship with that individual. But if, I, if that friend can say like, oh, shoot, Jenny, like I don't know what you're going through 
but it sounds definitely like blank, blank and blank, or you know what? I'm not sure. Maybe you need to talk to a friend of color. Cause for me, I'm not picking up on what that is, but I don't want to minimize you. Here's what, you know, I feel like just that willingness to have that conversation. So yeah, I think the relationships happen spontaneously all the time. Mm-hmm. We're allowed to have re- relationships across the board. And I think it is the onus of individuals, particularly with privilege, to continue to make sure they're doing the work in the meantime mm-hmm. to unpack that privilege, unpack, like Peggy McIntosh, right? Like that knapsack, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the white yeah. privilege. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. that and to really look at how their whiteness might be getting in the way of having a closer relationship with that person of color. Yep. Yeah. We could go on for forever, but um, we could. So in, in the interest of ritual, we have a ritual for how we end this Mm -hmm. conversation, which is I get out of the way and open the floor for you to speak to the 7,500 people that will be emailed this conversation. Um, either words of wisdom or a wish directly mm-hmm. to them. And just remember they're across 15 countries all over the world. Mm-hmm. Am I on? Can I go? You can go. It's all <laughs> you. Well, my intention for everybody listening is that we continue to hand over all of our negative self-talk, all of our judgments, all of our anxieties, over to something greater than ourselves. And that is the collective spirit, (laughs) the collective spirit of this world, this earth, this energy. Um, My intention and my wish for everyone is that we continue to place collective community healing um, on the same pedestal as personal healing, that we continue to demand, not ask, demand for radical change, so that our children and our grandchildren, seven generations before and after us, continue to receive healing. And the ways I think that we can continue to do this is by A, continuing to look at our points of privilege in the places in which we occupy and to engage accordingly, to be support for individuals who continue to, are, continue to be dep- oppressed and um, muted and silenced, And may we continue to be humane to each other. And what I mean by humane is make space for the people that are still learning and don't understand so much about privilege. Make some space for people to learn and to apologize and to take accountability and to do it different, as well as make space for people that are enraged and understanding why a person must be enraged and what this means for them. Um, I wish for you space to feel all of your feelings I wish for you to make space to heal in whatever ways feel good, feels good in your body. And I wish for you to continue to realize that even one small shift can drastically change the effects of, of people that you're working with, of children that you're rearing, and of your own body chemistry. And thank you so much for listening um, to, till the end, <laughs> for being a part of this conversation. And for being here in this planet at this space in this time. I'm honored. That was beautiful. So Dr. Jennifer Mulan, everyone, I will put links if you would like to find her, how to learn more about what she's doing in the world in the show notes. And I just can't thank you enough. This was such a great opportunity to get to be in what I would call a grown-up, individuated, (laughs) two powerful women 
boundary connecting in earnest. And for that, I feel really grateful. Thank you. Thank you for Sidewalk Talk, Tracy, and all the people that you've impacted across this world. Thank you for being in difficult, you know, uncomfortable, squishy conversations and initiating it. And thank you for bringing me on and being open to the boundaries and doing it differently. So I appreciate you as well. Awesome. All right. You have a good rest of your day. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for being here and listening to this episode of the Sidewalk Talk podcast. If you like what you heard, tell your friends, tell your family, like and comment on the podcast publisher that you're listening from and subscribe. This will help us get the word out about changing our culture to one of connection.